today. Would you open it to Ephesians chapter 6? We are going to be covering verses 5 through 9, and we take it section by section. It's written in literary form, and so just like in English, the original Greek was written in sentences and paragraphs, and each one contained one big idea. And so I found the, the best approach to study the Bible is to take it by its big ideas and to see what is said about that subject. And so today, the subject of this text is serving, serving in Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He has addressed specifically wives and then husbands and then children and then fathers, and now he says in verse 5, servants. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service. As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is our sincere intent to understand your word, to, to derive the meaning of the text, realizing, Lord, that you have spoken truth to us today and that it is beneficial today as it was then. Lord, I pray that the cultural context in which we live would not cloud or color the original authorial intent of the message, but that we would be able to lay aside uh, some of these presuppositions and come, Lord, to your word and let it speak for itself. Father, our heart's desire is to see people come to Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save the lost. I pray that you would stir the saved. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring yourself greater glory because of it. And so may your word do its work today freely in our lives, and may the fruit be seen in the days ahead. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be wondering why there is a text like this in the Bible. Uh, perhaps you don't wonder, perhaps you've read over it superficially and you just think, okay, it's there. But as you read this text, you realize that it's actually speaking to people who are in servitude, servants. Uh, some translations translated bond servant or slave. The Greek word is doulos, and it, it means that, that whole multitude of servitude, whether it is slavery or servitude or indentitude. And so as we come to this text of Scripture, sometimes we, we, have, to, we have to come and wrestle and understand why God has placed something in Scripture. We approach Scripture with the presupposition that it is divinely inspired word. 
And so uh, presupposition is just what you presuppose about something based upon your experience, based upon your education, based upon your previous studies, based upon your, your, your core beliefs. You have presuppositions. You, you, you approach subjects with a presupposition. And so as believers, we come with the presupposition that this is the divinely inspired word of God, whether it is speaking about salvation or serving whether it is speaking about history or whether it's speaking about eschatology, we believe that it is the divinely inspired Word of God because the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, complete, truly furnished to all good works. And so we have this presupposition, this conviction that this is the Word of God. And so that is not in there by accident. That is not in there by man-made Intent that is not in there by redaction that was inspired of God. As such, we have to recognize that it stands in authority over us. We do not stand in authority over it. If you are going to follow Christ, you have to recognize Christ's authority. And not just his authority when he was present on earth, but the authority that is in his word. And where people go wrong is when they try to take a position of authority over the Bible. Let me give you a for instance. Um, sometimes we allow our experience to take authority over the Bible. And some religious practices today are simply because somebody says, well, I had this experience. I felt this movement or I had this inclination. And so I, I, I use that as the authority of my life instead of allowing the scripture to be our authority. That means we don't assume to know better than God and try to edit or excuse what the Bible says. And so I'm not going to try to explain this passage away because it may be a hot-button issue in our day and time because it may be taboo. It is our responsibility to study it in order to understand why God has included it as part of the Holy Scriptures. Now, you ever read your Bible and say, you know what, it might be, it might be more acceptable among the public if that wasn't in there. I think we all experience that sometimes. That whole wives submit thing. Man, it would be a little easier on us, Lord, if you didn't put that in there. And now here's something about slaves telling them to obey their masters. How in the world could God do that? And I say to you, 2 Timothy 3.15, 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the position that we are to take. I, I, I don't know why God put that in here. Then I study it to figure it out, to understand why is it there? What is the benefit of it? What is the lesson? Because if you and I take the other position, all of a sudden we're taking authority over the word of God and we're saying that should not be in there and God was wrong for putting it in there and I know more than God knows on this subject. Well, that's a dangerous place that we don't want to be in I love what Proverbs 25 2 says it is the glory of God to conceal a thing but the honor of kings to search out a matter hey you know God made so much so plain in the beginning 
God created the heavens and the earth. Does it get any plainer than that? Uh, He created them in his likeness, male and female. Created he them. Does it get any plainer? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does it get any plainer? Jesus said, if I go away, I will come again. And so there is much of Scripture that is absolutely plain, that could be understood at the lowest literary level. But there's also parts of Scripture that are more difficult to understand. You don't believe me? Open your Bible to Ezekiel and just begin reading. I saw a wheel inside of a wheel in the sky moving What is going on here? Well, you're not going to get it on the first reading. I guarantee you that. And so part of the reason of that is because some of those things are prophetic and yet to be seen, and God is giving us a preview of them. But the other is because God is God, and he is greater than you and I. He knows more than you and I. He is more intelligent than you and I. He has a bigger vocabulary than you and I. He has a higher IQ than you and I. And so sometimes you and I need to be humbled and realize, hey, I need to do some study if I'm going to try to figure out what God is saying here. And he says, it's the glory of God to conceal it. It's the honor of kings to search it out. Laboring to understand the scriptures is an achievement that is worthy of high honors. And we are living in a day and time when the, the publishing of scriptures has never been more prolific. There are more copies of the word of God, more translations of the word of God in our day and time than ever have been before. And the literacy level of the populations of the world is higher than it has ever been. And yet biblical literacy is at an all-time low. Because even Christians don't care to read their Bible. And so you and I need to realize that this is worthy of high honors if you actually study your Bible. In fact, Acts 17 describes it this way, These were more noble than they in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. And I say to you, Christian, that you are of noble birth in Christ. You, you, you may not have been born into the royal family, but when you got born again, you got born into the king of kings family. And so you are of noble birth in Christ, but it's up to you whether or not you live up to your nobility. Will you conduct yourself as a king and search out those things that God has concealed? Or will you act as a court jester and mock it and make fun of it in your ignorance, not understanding it? We've got way too many people in the world today who do that with the Bible. The wise know that there is something to learn through an honest study of difficult scriptures. But the fool simply dismisses the tough texts. Assuming that, that their ignorance, in their ignorance, that they know more than the God of the universe. And so I want us to be wise today. 
I, I want us not to act foolish. I want us to come to this text with open eyes to see what we can learn so that if some challenger does come to you and I say, why is the Bible advocating for slavery? You can unapologetically explain to them what this text means. Wouldn't that be great? Number one, the reality of servants. The reality of servants. Paul says he addresses them, servants, be obedient unto them that are your masters. Just as he addressed wives, just as he addressed husbands, just as he addressed children, just as he addressed fathers, he addresses servants. Can I tell you, the Bible is not a fairy tale. It is not a fairy tale that imagines the world only as it should be. It views the world as it actually is. You know, that's one of the issues that I have with Hallmark movies. I say this just to be controversial. That is the only reason I would make that statement. Because I know some of y'all like those Hallmark movies. But the Hallmark movie imagines the world as they wish it were, not as it really is. Right? Have you found the town where those Hallmark movies are at? Do the people in your town have all the quaint characteristics and quirks that they do? Does the grumpy old man or woman always turn sweet in the end? Is there always a happy ending to romance? And so you and I need to understand the Bible's not a fairy tale that, that, that's painting a picture of the world as it wishes that it was. It is a Bible that is speaking truth about reality and it sees the world as it actually is. The fact is that at the time when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, get this, one out of every five people in the Roman Empire were slaves. One out of five. Can you imagine that? One out of five, 20%. At this time, there's approximately 60 million people in the Roman Empire. 12 million are in servitude. And so it's a reality as a matter of fact, I would say to you that the Bible would be negligent if it didn't address the people who were in this condition. Because you would have people who are getting saved. No doubt part of that population is getting saved. And they need to understand what it means to have a relationship with Christ in the place of servitude that they may be locked into at that moment. Paul understands that with 20% of the population in servitude that there would be servants in the church to which he is writing. I would say that it would be a disgrace and I would say it would be a disservice if he didn't address them when he writes this letter. He wants them to know that though they may not be free people in the Roman Empire, that they are citizens of the kingdom of God and that they have the same standing in Christ. You may be a bit incensed by this and think, well, why didn't Paul write about the evils of slavery? And, and why didn't he start a campaign to end it? A couple of thoughts here for you. For one, he did. If you read the book of Philemon, you'll find that he advocated on behalf of a slave, asking him to be released of his servitude. So the Bible in no way is defending slavery. It's not advocating slavery. It's not saying that slavery is right. And the very same one who was inspired to write this actually advocated to have a slave freed. 
As a matter of fact, he did more than that. You know what's so funny to me about our social media age is that people think that if they make a post on a social media platform that they've actually done something to affect the situation. Let me tell you what Paul did. He did more than make a post about how he is opposed to it. He actually wrote to Philemon and he said, Philemon, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. I will pay it. I will give flesh for flesh, skins for skin. I will take on his debt. I'd say he really believed in advocating for the freedom of the enslaved. And so, for one, we have that. If we look at the totality of the Bible, we understand that it's not advocating for it. But the other aspect we need to be aware of is that we're probably viewing this issue from a very American point of view. You know the beef that the rest of the world has with Americans, one of the beefs? is that that we're so egocentric. They complain all the time that we show up somewhere and act like nobody else knows how to do anything, and we, we ramrod our stuff through. Well, can I tell you, even the kindest of us are are bound by our perspective. And when you and I hear slavery, the only thing that we think about is slavery in America. Tell me one thing about slavery in Europe. Tell me one thing about slavery in Paraguay. Tell me one thing about slavery in South America. Tell me one thing about slavery in Africa. And there would be very few of us that could give any type of detail to slavery anywhere else other than in our own American history. And so while it is good that we learn from our history, learn from our past, learn from our mistakes, we can't take and impose that on this text and say, that's the exact same thing that was going on here before the Civil War. No. We must realize that in Bible times and throughout much of human history, I would go as far as to say throughout all of human history, servitude was as much a voluntary option as it was a forced position. So what do you mean by that? Well, I mean there were those who were forced into slavery. In Roman times, if they conquered a people, sometimes they took those people and they enslaved them. That was forced upon them. It was slavery and it was wrong. But do you understand that throughout all of human history and even to today, that there are people who sold themselves into slavery. You say, why in the world would somebody do that? And again, I would point to our spoiled American perspective and say, you know what, I could be poor, I could be indigent, and I could still survive in this country because there are government programs that help, and there are, are charities that help, and literally I could be destitute, and I could still get clothes to wear and food to eat and some lodging to find. But do you understand that in much of the world and throughout much of history, you were in danger of dying from exposure or starvation if you were born into certain circumstances. And you realize, hey, I can either die out here of starvation and exposure or I can give myself into servitude where I can at least be housed and fed and I can survive to perhaps better myself or my future. And so 
People would do that in order to survive poverty, and they would do that in order to make an advancement. It is evidence in the Old Testament. If I take in the totality of Scripture and I go back to the Old Testament, I find that there were people who sold themselves into servitude for a period of time. And then in the New Testament, we find that in the Roman history during New Testament ages, the same was true there. And I would remind you that it was also true in colonial America. Now, I have to admit to you, I learned this fact this week as I was preparing, and it was quite shocking to me. Do you realize that nearly half of the white Europeans who immigrated to the American colonies before the Revolution came as indentured servants? Nearly half. There were 500,000 white European immigrants, and they say 48% of them came as indentured servants. They would sign a contract of servitude, and it was anywhere from a term of three years to seven years. And what they were doing is saying, I will serve this master for this period of time in exchange for my transportation from Europe to the colonies and the promise of a parcel of land at the end of my servitude. And so you and I have to understand that this is a reality. It was a reality in Paul's day. There were people who were in servitude. Some were there not by choice. Others were there by choice. And so the Bible speaks to the reality of things. But then we also find this. It's the reference of servants. So he begins by addressing servants in verse 5. Literal servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, singleness of heart as unto Christ. Watch this, verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do you realize that the Christian's relationship to God goes beyond any other relationship? And in order to help us understand it, the Bible uses a multitude of human relationships. So just think about this for a minute. When you think about your relationship to God, we think about it in a child and father context, do we not? He's our heavenly father. We are his sons and daughters. And so here we get one angle of it and say, what's your relationship like to God? Well, it's like a, a child with his father. But then we get into the New Testament and we read something like this. It's, it's like the relationship between a bride and groom. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we say, what's your relationship like with God? Well, it's like a husband and wife relationship. It's voluntary. It's committed. It's monogamous. And so we get a different aspect of it. And then we learn that, that it's some ways uh, like a brother and sister or sibling relationship. The Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ, that, that we are brothers and sisters with him so we have this same familial DNA chain and characteristics that go with it uh, we also see it described as kings and subjects and so sometimes it's described as God is the king and his people are his subjects and no subjects ever had it so good as those who were the subjects of the king of kings and the lord of lords in other ways it's compared to the relationship between a commander and soldiers and sometimes he is the chief captain and we are his soldiers and he is commanding us on the battlefield and he is leading us and then sometimes it is described in terms of master and servants. How would I know 
How would you know what that looks like if there were no frame of reference on earth? How would we know? How would we know that that's part of our relationship dynamic, that not only is he my father, no ma- only is he my captain, but he is my master, he is my lord, he is my curios, he is the one who, who has the right to rule my life. How would I understand that that is part of our relationship dynamic if there were no earthly reference for it of master and servant? And so God uses this to help us understand our relationship. Christians are the servants of Christ. And we could say that, and it would be a true statement. You say, we're more than that. You are, but you're not less than that. Christians are the servants of Christ. Uh, That's how Paul saw himself, Romans 1.1, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. That's how James saw himself, James, the servant of Christ. That's how Peter saw himself, 2 Peter 1.1, Peter, the servant of Christ. That's how Jude saw himself, the brother of Jesus, the earthly half-brother of Jesus. He saw himself as Jude, the servant of Christ. That's how John, the disciple, saw himself in Revelation 1.1, that he was the servant of Christ, and the revelation was given to him to be given to his servants. You and I need to see ourselves as servants. Not as privileged children. Not as those who have the right to demand something from God. But as those who have the responsibility to serve at our master's will. Whatever he wants us to do, wherever he wants us to go, wherever he wants us to serve, whatever task he assigns us to, let me tell you something. There's a lot of contentment to be found in that. When you realize that you have a master who has given you an assignment and you fulfill that task, there's great contentment that comes from that. By the way, If you think that this is beneath you, I'm not a servant. Don't call me a servant. That's not how it is. That's my father. He loves me. Yes, he does. And I remember a boy, we call him the prodigal son, who was a son. But he came back with the attitude of a servant. And he says, I'm not worthy to be a son. I I just want to serve you. And the father put the robe on him and the ring and the shoes and all of that. But yet we find here this this parallel in the life of a believer that we are children and we are servants. But again, I say, if you think this is beneath you, if you think the idea of me telling you that you ought to serve God like a servant served a master, then I would simply point you to Christ You see, because he came to this earth as a servant. Philippians 2, 5 says that uh, though uh, he were equal with God, he took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Oh, I'm too good to serve. Your Lord wasn't too good to serve. 
As a matter of fact, when he was rebuking his disciples for their desire to dominate other people, he said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The one who's greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who makes himself servant of all. Jesus said those words. Have you never read John 13 when Jesus, the night before he is crucified, lays aside his rabbi's garment, takes on the servant's towel, and he goes around and he washes the feet of his disciples, and they are appalled by the fact of that. Why? Because that was the job of the lowest servant in the house. And when none of the disciples were willing to do it, the master robed himself in the servant's garb and he served them and he says as I have done to you so do ye to others and so what we find here in this text the reason one of the reasons is included in scripture is because we need a reference of what it looks like to be a servant if we are going to serve Christ third the requirement of servants he says in verse 7, with, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men. This reminds us that, 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 that we should serve Christ regardless of what our circumstances are. Regardless of what your circumstances are. No matter where you are today, no matter what you're going through today, you have a responsibility to serve God where you are it's required of us framed in this context to actual servants is a very powerful lesson that no matter what my situation might be I have a higher calling to do my service to Christ you don't like your job they don't treat you right you don't get paid enough you didn't get the raise you should have. Well, you'll show them. You'll just go in with a bad attitude and you'll do less. No, no. The requirement of servants is to serve as we're serving Christ. Did Christ do you wrong? Did Christ let you down? Did Christ upset your apple cart? Why would we give him less than our best? You know, that applies to whatever vocation you may have. Whether it's at the bank or the hospital or the school or the factory, you do your work as to the Lord and not to men. You say, I don't like that. That's not a very popular message. Well, you could have been a servant in the first century getting this. And you know, that's where it really guts me. Because I have no excuse. If he required that of them in their circumstance, how in the world can I say that I have a reason not to do the same? This takes every excuse that I could have for being a poor employee because if this is what God required of Christians in servitude, then what excuse do you or I have? You might think this is unrealistic and preposterous. You're, you're talking crazy talk, preacher. What do you mean? You're, you're telling me I ought to give my life to that factory and I ought to do work hard. Nobody else is working hard down there. You're telling me that I should do this. You can't. Nobody does that. You ever hear a guy named Joseph? 
I think he did it. Wasn't he an actual servant? Wasn't he an actual slave? Didn't his brothers sell him into slavery? And he becomes the best servant that Potiphar ever had, and he becomes uh, over his house. I believe there was a little girl. We don't know her name. But she was the handmaid to Naaman's wife. And Naaman was a Syrian commander who had leprosy. And he had tried everything and he couldn't be healed. And this little servant girl who had been ripped out of her homeland of Israel and was made to serve in the house of that, she actually was serving the Lord. And she said, well, if he, if he could go to the prophet in my country, he could be healed of his leprosy. Let me tell you something. That little girl had every reason to keep her mouth shut. Let that guy die. He robbed me from my family. But you know, what is interesting in the story of Naaman is that not only was it a servant who prompted him to go, but when he goes, remember, he meets Elisha, and he's totally offended by that. I mean, like the prophet doesn't go to the door. And he sends somebody, his assistant out, and says, go dip in the river seven times. And Naaman is tore up from the floor up. He's like, the Jordan River is not an impressive river. I've got better rivers back in my... Did I travel all this way with all this entourage to be called to dip in this muddy creek that you call a river? And do you know who convinced him to do that? His servants. Well, Master, if he had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done that? Why don't you just give it a try? And again, I say to you that you and I just don't have an excuse for not serving Christ where we're at. There's more. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, they were all servants. And yet they served Jehovah, not Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's the requirement, folks. There's no way around it. You and I cannot sit and say sour and say well you know what i'm not going to serve the lord because you know, he's put me in this I'm... the fourth and final aspect that we find here is the reward of servants it says in verse 8 knowing that whatsoever good things any man doeth the same shall he receive of the lord whether he be bond or free the good news is that christ richly rewards faithful servants Christ does. He richly rewards faithful servants. You may not get a fair shake on this earth, but Christ will reward you in heaven. And the last time I checked, as a Christian, I'm not supposed to be living for this world's accolades. I'm supposed to be living for the king. I'm not supposed to be living for all the good life that I can get here. There were plenty of rich people who fared sumptuously, who died and went to hell, according to the Bible. And there were poor and impoverished ones who entered into the glorious reward of heaven. Just think about all the parables that Jesus told about servants and how they were rewarded. Matthew 25, 21, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You think maybe Jesus was teaching us a spiritual truth there? 
That if you and I are faithful servants wherever we find ourselves in this world, that our service will be rewarded and it will not be overlooked and not neglected and that we will have a reward of Christ. In the weakness of our flesh, we might say, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it to, to really to put myself out there, to exhaust myself, to, to go above and beyond when other people aren't doing it. To which the Bible says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. According to our text in Ephesians, the more difficult the assignment is on earth, the greater the reward is in eternity. You got a raw deal here on earth. You got a, you got a bad deal. You didn't get a fair shake here on earth. Well, let me tell you something. If you faithfully serve Christ where you are, you've got a greater reward waiting on you in heaven. Haven't you and I learned that there is no inequity with God Oh, yes, there is inequity on earth. There is inequity with governments. There is inequity with uh, meritocracy. There is inequity all around us. But there is no inequity with God. God is righteous. God is just. And while not everyone has the same privileges in life, everyone has the same opportunities in Christ. There's no doubt that we are all born into different economic stratus. There are some people who are just born into more wealth than other people are. And God never promised that every privilege would be equal. But he did promise that every opportunity in Christ was equal. That you can serve God where you're at, and they can serve God where they're at. And if we are faithful servants of God, where we find ourselves in life, then there are rewards for our service and the difficulty of our service and the challenge of our service and the exhaustion of our service. The servant and the master, the employee and the employer, the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, each will be judged for what they did for Christ with what they had. Oh, it reminds me of the time that Jesus was standing near the offering box at the temple and he watched and he watched many wealthy come through and, and put their coins in and then there was this one poor little widow woman that cast in a widow's mite. I mean, it was a penny, if you will. And Jesus looked at that and said to his disciples, she has given more than they all. He said, how can you say that? I mean, if you would have taken it out and calculated the coins, I mean, there's, it's incomparable. And he said, well, they gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her want. Her plight was more difficult, so her offering was more valuable. Do you not understand that if your situation in life is more difficult, then your service to Christ can be more meaningful, more valuable? So let's not be guilty of saying, if I had this, I would do that. But rather, let us determine to serve God wholeheartedly right where we are with no excuses. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you asking you to
use your Holy Spirit to echo your words in our heart. That as we take in this teaching from Scripture, that it would not just get cataloged in the back of our mind when we leave this building, but that your Holy Spirit would keep prompting us and sending us notifications and reminders of this truth so that when we go back to our workplace tomorrow, we go back with a new attitude. We go back working and witnessing for Christ, not simply working for a paycheck, not just trying to meet the, the status quo, but actually seeking to serve you where you've placed us. Oh, Lord, I believe that a great evangelistic awakening could happen if Christians lived out their Christianity on Monday through Friday that they celebrate on Sunday. Lord, we know that this is not an easy message. I can't imagine how difficult it was for those who received it in the first century. But Lord, we believe that it is divine truth, that it is authoritative truth, and that makes it doable. And so Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to be faithful servants and that we might serve you faithfully all the way to the end of our lives. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.